just an exciting study, uh, the book of James, isn't it? We've had a great time together, and uh, we're going to continue looking at the lesson, the memory text here for this week uh, on, on Sabbath afternoon's lesson is found in James chapter 2 and verse 13, and it says, for judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So there it is, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. You want to probably open your Bibles to James, because we're going to be there, <clears throat> and we're going to be in chapter 2, and continuing the train of thought that James is presenting to us here. James chapter 2, and uh, we're going to be right here in verse 1. Um, motivated by thoughts of serving self, individuals are also led to prejudiced thinking and seeing others less than they are. And that's where the, uh, our lesson centers here in the book of James chapter 2. I don't know if you've noticed that. It seems so natural to think, for example, that one culture may be superior than another. And, um, or a person that perhaps is well-dressed deserves more attention or um, more uh, uh, favours than someone who may not be as well-dressed or have money. And James will talk, we'll talk about this and we'll look at this here in just a little bit in James chapter 2. So we often find ourselves, and this is a reality, often trapped by thoughts that we know are out of harmony with the principles of the Gospel that tells us to treat one another kindly and impartially with genuineness genuine biblical love. I think the, uh, we, we find ourselves and our minds drifting at times. Um, I, just, I read the story here actually last night about an individual wife walking through a park and they were in Miami, Florida and they, had, uh, they were just strolling through. They noticed a family and this family apparently was from Cuba and they were there having a picnic and they were uh, surrounded by raccoons who were begging for some food. And, uh, and the, 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 the father, the husband, was in his native tongue, in Spanish, uh, calling for the raccoon to come over and get something to eat. Here, boy, come and get something to eat. And the gentleman and his wife walked on, and he ended up later confiding in his, to his wife um, and saying, you know, it was a silly thought, but the first thing that popped into my head is how silly it is to talk to a raccoon in Spanish. They don't know Spanish. And, and so, it, you know, it could be the other way around. Could have been a Cuban, Cuban family walking through the park and someone speaking English. How, raccoons don't know English. It could have been the other way around. And, um, and sometimes we, we have these thoughts that run through our mind or there's this, there's this thing that is within our minds that perhaps pits us better than others that we maybe don't understand or cannot relate to, per se. And certainly, that would not be uh, the attitude that Christ is wanting to develop in His people. No matter what psychologists or sociobiologists or sociologists say, our problem can be best summarized in the words of Jeremiah in chapter 17 and verse 9, and you know it well, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? That's the condition of the heart, but thank God that He offers us offers to us to create in us a clean heart and to renew a right spirit or a right attitude in each one of us. God wants to train us to truly love, 
from a pure heart that doesn't have skewed motives. And this change is truly a miracle from God that occurs with full cooperation uh, with those that love Him and serve Him. And so, with that little preamble, let's go to Sunday's lesson. We're going to jump over. The man in gold, Sunday's lesson, the man in gold. And we're in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. James highlights this problem of partiality or respecting certain individuals to the detriment of others. And, he, and this is what we're basically going to be discussing here uh, this morning. James chapter 2, and uh, James chapter 2, verse 1, notice the problem as, as is expressed. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with what? If you have a King James Version, it says respect of persons. New King James, partiality. Partiality. And I would suggest and submit here this morning that partiality has weakened the church, the influence of the church, and corrupted its witness in the world because Christ is not represented in such behavior. It's happened and even happens today. So, what is partiality? What is James writing about here? What is partiality? Prejudice. Prejudice, which leads to discrimination and segregation. Prejudice can be defined in this manner. Prejudice is prejudgment or forming an opinion before becoming aware of the relevant facts of a case. The word is often used to refer to preconceived, usually unfavorable judgment toward people or persons of gender, uh, of social class, of age, disability, religion, race, ethnicity, language, nationality, or any other personal characteristic. Um, you may have heard this little cute story about the two apples that were looking down on the world. The first apple said, look at all those people down there fighting, robbing, rioting. No one seems willing to get along with this fellow man. And someday, we apples will be the only one left and we will rule the world. Replied the second apple, which of us, the reds or the greens? It's a, it's a trait, a human trait to, uh, to esteem ourselves better than others or to view our circumstances perhaps better than somebody else or our culture or our language or our status in society, our religion even. And, uh, and yet this is contrary to the spirit of the gospel. Favoritism, prejudice, racism, tribalism, whatever a person wishes to call it, was a problem uh, in, of the Jews in the days of Christ. You remember, they had built up a, a lot of barriers uh, and walls uh, to protect them from the influence of the, uh, of the world around them. And so, uh, and so, they became prejudiced against the Gentiles, those who were not Jews. And so, we have, uh, we have that example here in the, in the Scriptures. If, uh, if over in Acts chapter 10, you've got the story of Peter. What, what was Peter's problem? Do you remember? What was Peter's problem? He had, he had prejudice. Yeah, he was actually, Peter was a racist. Um, and God had to send him a vision and a dream to, to get his attention and encourage him to, uh, to uh, shake it off, so to speak. So, we, when we consider the early Jews, uh, early, early uh, the Jews in the days of Jesus, um, we know there was a major problem. And in their attempt to preserve their spirituality and their religion, they ended up becoming prejudiced, biased against those who were not Jews. 
And, uh, and is there a chance or is there a risk for Christians to do the same thing? Seventh-day Adventist Christians to do the same thing? Our, our faith is far more superior than others. We are the remnant after all. And uh, surely God favours us more than others. Is that potentially some person's thinking here today? Hopefully not. So uh, we've, got the issue, we've got the issue with the, uh, the, the Jews in the days of Jesus. We've got the issue with Peter, who was also a racist. And we'll come back to his story in just a little bit. Then in James chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, notice uh, James uh, bluntly, how he, how he bluntly portrays the situation that some Christians were uh, riddled with here, challenged with here in his day. James chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, it says, For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, Hey, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, Hey, you stand over there or sit on my footstool, you have not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? It's a rhetorical question. The answer, of course, is yes. Yes, we've uh, become partial and we've become judges. We've placed ourselves up in positions that we ought not place ourselves up in and have looked down on somebody because of the way they were dressed or the way they carried themselves or whatever it is. Uh, you know, we're talking about, I've been talking about prejudice and race and so on. Uh, and, and, and this thinking is pervasive in many areas of life, right here in James chapter 2. James is talking about the attitude of, of, uh, of respecting, other, respecting other persons to the detriment of others, partiality, um, uh, with regard to how a person carries themselves uh, and how a person dresses and how they look. And uh, certainly, he's not encouraging that type of behavior here. Uh, this attitude naturally goes against the teachings of Jesus. We have several Bible verses we're going to look at here, Exodus chapter 23, verses 3 and 6. I want you to notice some of the scriptures that talk against this idea of being partial in the treatment of other individuals. Someone also has Acts chapter 10, verse 28, 34 and 35. Who's got that text for us here? Okay, Mike's got that text. Acts chapter 10, verses 34, rather Acts chapter 10, verses 28, 34 and 35. We're going to come to you here in just a second. Exodus chapter 23, verses 3 and 6. I want you to notice uh, what, um, what God said here to His people. He said, You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute, brought before the judge, dealing with an issue, and you shouldn't show partiality just because he's a poor man. You shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. So don't treat someone who's poor, someone who's considered on the lower rung of social order, considered, not that they are, but considered, don't treat them differently. Treat them as a human being. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 15, you shall not do injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honour the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbour. And so don't be treating someone poorly because they are poor and don't give undue deference to someone who might be considered important or powerful in society. Then Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 17, God says, you shall not show partiality in judgment, you shall hear the small as well as the what? The great. You treat everyone the same, you shall not be afraid in any man's presence for the judgment is God's. This, the case that is too hard for you bring to me and I will hear it. 
All right, now we're coming to Acts chapter 10, verses 28, 34, and 35. Thanks, Michael. Acts chapter 10, verse 28. Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one another, one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Verse 34. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. And so this was the, thank you, this was the testimony of Peter. Peter, if God finally got through to his thick skull, his hard head that, hey, you can't be treating the Gentiles this way. This is the story related to Cornelius and his family. Uh, He had a, a dream And uh, this man's heart was open to receiving truth. And God wanted to use Peter, but God had to speak to Peter first to say, hey, he's a human being. And uh, and just because he's not a Jew doesn't mean that you, you know, you can't be treating him differently here. You got to treat all men the same. And uh, don't call anyone common or unclean. Uh, God shows no partiality. God is no respecter of persons. And I think the, 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 the place where we all find where the, the playing field is leveled is certainly at the foot of the cross because up there Jesus died for everyone. It didn't matter about their, their social status, their gender, uh, their political affiliation uh, or their religion. He died for all so that all might be saved. So the gospel teaches us to value all human beings as having equal worth irrespective of gender irrespective of age, irrespective of status. I don't know if you've ever caught yourself uh, treating someone who is perceived to be important uh, better than maybe someone who you consider not to be as important. And um, sometimes there there is the American idol, but sometimes there's also the Adventist idol. Uh, where a particular individual might be esteemed because uh, he's a great evangelist or a great administrator in the church and uh, deference is shown him, but then when someone comes by that's not as important or we don't know that person, we're not treating them as well or as nice. Um, No partiality um, with regard to lifestyle. Now, there's certainly some practice, lifestyle practices that a Christian wouldn't embrace or adopt or encourage, um, and, uh, and certainly understand certain lifestyle practices would be considered sinful. But we sometimes, we sometimes get the person and the sin all confused, and instead of hating the sin, we end up hating the person. And in, in Hebrews chapter 1, we're talk, talking of Jesus. Jesus, we're told, loved the sinner but hated the, the sin loves righteousness but hates the sin. And so irrespective of, how, of what a person believes, whatever their lifestyle is, show impartiality. Don't, show, uh, don't be partial, show impartiality. Treat all people with deference and respect. What about those that have a different religious conviction? What about those even within the church that we might disagree with? A um, couple of hot-button items right now, women's ordination. What happens? Do we treat people differently because they don't agree with the way I see things? Do we treat them less subhuman because they don't see eye to eye with me on this particular issue? Uh, you may be right, but being right doesn't make you righteous. Being right doesn't make you right with Jesus. 
Yeah. The Bible says that uh, even the devil believes and trembles, but the devil's lost. And some folk believe and they know the truth, but uh, don't show that uh, love and that grace in their lives. Do we give greater respect to those who we perceive to be above us on the social ladder and less respect to those below? So these are questions for us, probing questions, and James is challenging our thinking, inspiration. God is challenging our thinking, wanting to, wanting to have all of our hearts to check our motives and to uh, call us to a higher plane. Let's continue the thought. Let's go over to Monday. Uh, James continues, class struggle. Monday's lesson. Look at James chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Now, you are familiar, no doubt, with the story of Mahatma Gandhi, and uh, in his autobiography, he wrote that in his student days, he'd read the Gospels seriously and considered even becoming a Christian. And he believed that in the teachings of Jesus, he could find the solution to the caste system that was dividing the people of India. So one Sunday, he decided to attend a particular service. It was a Sunday-keeping church at a nearby church and talked to the minister about becoming a Christian. And in his story, he said when he entered the sanctuary, he was uh, greeted by an usher who refused to seat him and suggested that he go worship with his own people. And Gandhi left to never to return, and he said, if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. So that usher's prejudice also only, not only betrayed Jesus and his, and his message, but also turned a person away from ever trusting in the Savior. Gandhi worked, uh, if you know the story, to eradicate ca the caste system in India, which is social stratification. Uh, a divided a society that is divided into, into different classes. And in essence, in his day, they were divided into four classes. Um, although admirable, prejudice can never be ultimately removed by coercion or through laws. But what really needs to happen? It needs to be a change of heart. You know, social pressure can come to bear, and we saw this recently with a, an owner of a basketball team. A lot of pressure came to bear because of his racial comments and remarks, and they were wrong. But all the social pressure that came to bear on him, would that, would that, has, does that have potential to change his heart, truly? No. Who's the only one that can change the heart? Jesus. That's right. And so, uh, that's what we're talking about here, true change of heart. James chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Notice, listen, my beloved brethren, James is continuing his thought, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the promise which He promised to those who love Him? Now, what James is not suggesting here is that only the poor are the heirs to the, to, to, the, to the kingdom of heaven. He's not suggesting that if you have a low social status, then you're in. And so, automatically, everyone becomes poor, okay, just to get to the kingdom of heaven. That's not what he's saying. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But has not God chosen them to be rich in faith, heirs, of the, uh, heirs to the kingdom? Verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor man. You who have dishonored the poor man, do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? So here, um, James is referring to, the when he talks about the poor, he's talking about poor regarding uh, the, the estimation people place on certain individuals who are considered poor in, in, the, in society or in the world. Um, I don't know if anyone here has ever worked as a literature evangelist before. I spent uh, all my summers in college and springs and winters, and I uh, was a full-time LE and a, and a publishing leader. 
Um, it's interesting, and, and if you go door to door and you're selling Christian literature, you know that when you go to the wealthier neighborhoods, you have a harder time selling Christian books. But when you go to areas that uh, maybe uh, you know, just regular housing developments or even areas that are considered lower class, that normally the books just fly. Folk who don't have the money, but they sense their need of something more, sense that they have, need to have hope in something, it's just kind of the way it, way it is when you're working as a literature evangelist. You're knocking on doors and depending on social status, perceived social, social status, well, yeah, the books, books go or books do not go at all. And um, it's the same with regard to the church. In some of the poorest countries in the world, the gospel has exploded, church growth is phenomenal, but in affluent societies in North America, including Canada and, and Europe and, and the Aust- in Australasia, places like this, what's considered first world countries, the churches aren't growing as fast. And that may be because folk who have a lot of stuff, a lot of goods, don't sense their need of anything more. Life is pretty good, life is pretty happy, we're able to pay the bills, we're able to get along, we have the stuff that we want, not necessarily need, but we have the stuff we want as well, and um, everything's good, and so there's no particular need. But those who may not have much of this world's goods tend to have a, a greater need for something that is more lasting and more enduring. Just how it works. James echoes here in chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, James echoes the same sentiments of Paul and of Jesus which is that the wealth of the rich man often becomes a substitute for trusting in God. I want to read a couple of verses here to you. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. This is Paul speaking about the same issue. He says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not, on, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. <laughs> That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. And then Jesus speaking about the same issue. Luke chapter 6, verses 20 to 25 He says, then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, we know Jesus is not talking about those who don't have much of this world's goods, but those who are poor in spirit, recognizing their spiritual need, their need of of righteousness. Blessed are you who hunger, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and when you... Uh, They exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. Now notice, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. Now notice this. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And so the woe is on those who have no need of spiritual blessings, of righteousness. I'm pretty self-satisfied, I'm pretty good. I look at myself in the mirror, got got a pretty decent job, nice car, look good, hair's cool, I'm okay, I'm set to go. And, uh, but Jesus says, woe, woe to those who 
are rich. Woe to those who are full. Woe to those who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. In the day of uh, the Apostle Paul and James, Jesus, the Roman, Roman law apparently codified discrimination against the poor in favor of the rich. And uh, while laws in this land don't necessarily do that, there is certainly favoritism that ex- is expressed toward those with fame and fortune. Whereas someone who would commit a crime uh, in society, and you're not a part of politics, or you're not a famous person, uh, you would be, the book would be thrown at you. But if you're well-known, and um, folk like you, and you're respected, in, uh, and you've got lots of money, you get a little slap on the wrist. And so there's certainly favoritism, partiality seen in today's society and in the way certain things are handled. Paul admonishes us not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We need a new way of thinking. Don't don't be locked in, pressed in, squeezed into the mold of the world and its thinking that... uh, that leads a person to uh, treating people with partiality. Don't do that, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And so, let's continue James's thoughts here. We're in James chapter 2, verses 8 to 9. Let's jump over to Tuesday's lesson, loving our neighbors. Loving our neighbors. The, uh, the story of the Good Samaritan found in Luke chapter 10, verses 30 to 37 really exemplifies what loving our neighbor looks like, doesn't it? We, we know the story very well. And, and that was actually a, a text question that I received here this week. What does, what does true Christianity, true love look like? And that, was, um, that question was asked because of uh, some, some comments that were made uh, to individuals that were coming through our food pantry here this week and how they really appreciated what this church does and uh, in providing for, for those who, don't, who are less fortunate, don't have um, um, a lot to offer their families. They're struggling for whatever purpose or whatever reason. And uh, these comments that came in were terrific, just, just, just commendation um, toward what uh, the, the, the food pantry was doing. What does true love look like? In the story of Jesus, in the story Jesus teaches, He isn't asking us to try harder or to do more, but to basically, in the story of the Good Samaritan, he's teaching us or telling us to treat people impartially. Treat people impartially, even those who may have done you or someone wrong. The, the individual who stopped to help the man on the side of the road who was left half dead, remember, who walked by him first? The religious leaders walked by him first. And the fellow that stopped was a Samaritan. He was an outsider, one of those that the Jews condemned as being less or being subhuman. And it was the Samaritan who stopped to help a, a Jew. So here was a Jew, half dead, who uh, made, had probably made disparaging remarks against the Samaritans, maybe had said things against his family, yet he stopped to help someone who was in need. This is, this is truly the, the test of Christianity. The test of Christianity is not in words, but in deeds, especially to those that may not, um, just may not treat us or speak to us well or favorably, or maybe even has done someone in our family some wrong, and we're holding a resentment, holding a grudge, and we're encouraged not to hold grudges. True love involves a substantial amount of risk and calls us to tear down uh, barriers of prejudice, 
racism, discrimination, partiality. Look at James chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. If you really fulfill the royal law, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, notice what it says, you do what? Commit what? Sin. Wow. Yes, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Someone has for me Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 45. I'm going to have you read that for us in just a moment here. Matthew chapter 5. Okay, fantastic. We'll come right on over in just a moment there, Andrew. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 45. First of all, let's look at Leviticus 19, verse 18. Leviticus 19, verse 18. It says, and this is where Jesus was quoting from and, and often quoted from in, uh, in Matthew and other places and where James is quoting from. Luke 19, verse 18, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am God. Now, the Jews in the time of Jesus took this to mean, let's, let's make sure we treat our own people well. And because the command was for our, your, the children of your own people, that meant that you didn't have to treat others who were not the children of your people the same way. Can you imagine that type of thinking? But that was the thinking in the days of Jesus. Uh, just treat those well, the children of your people, which means you, others you don't have to treat so well. And that certainly that's not what God was teaching. As a matter of fact, He wanted to expand the borders of, of Israel, didn't He? He wanted uh, Israel to become a blessing to the world and embrace uh, those who would, would accept the faith. Okay, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 45. Ye have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That ye may know that the children of your Father which is in heaven for he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. Okay, thank you very much. Now we have a question related to that, uh, to that verse, because that's a tough verse, isn't it? That's a tough one. Elizabeth, I think you've got that question. We're going to come to you in just a moment here. So uh, we'll get a uh, microphone over here to Elizabeth. Love those, wow. Jesus said it. Bless those, love your enemies, bless those that curse you, do good to those that hate you, pray for those who spitefully you. Is that easy to do? No, it's not. It is human. It is human to dislike a person. It is divine to love them, especially when they don't treat you well. And, you know, when we talk about love, uh, loving those who don't treat you well or may mistreat you, we're not talking about uh, you know, putting yourself in harm's way and, uh, or being in a situation where you're continually subjecting yourself to harm's way. Some people have no choice, but if you can remove your, your body from that situation, then you ought to do that. Uh, neither when we talk about loving those, uh, our enemies, are we, in, are we talking about here or is God talking about here having warm, fuzzy feelings necessarily. Remember, love is a principle. This is agape love, a love that is, is, is really a divine love that's able to love the enemies, love your enemies, bless those that curse you, etc. 
You know, when I think about Christianity and Christianity's contributions to society and our world in general, they're incredible. And they're all based on humanitarian um, projects. They're humanitarian projects based on humanitarian needs. Um, Christianity has made an impact, a tremendous impact in the world, true Christianity. Christianity that reaches out, a love that's in action. Uh, Christianity is the largest, has provided the largest single, is the largest single contributor of education and healthcare in the world. Pioneered social work, pioneered programs to protect the well-being of children, established the Red Cross, orphanages, pioneered care for the disabled and the elderly, impact on, impact on civil liberties, prison reform, work for the blind, deaf, visually hearing impaired, Habitat for Humanity, work for the Homeless Salvation Army, YMCA, can't forget ADRA, Adventist Community Services, and the list goes on. Christians are at the forefront of helping and assisting those who are less fortunate, showing impartiality toward humanity. But how can we love those? Well, that's the question you have, so I won't ask that question, but uh, Elizabeth, go ahead and ask the question. Okay, my question is, how can we learn how to express God's love to those that we consider underserving? Okay. All right, so this is a fair question, is it not? <laughs> how can we express love to those whom we consider less deserving? First of all, we need to remember, and this comes back to the text that Andrew read for us in Matthew 5.45, what does God do with the sun and with the rain? He sends it on everyone. Does God treat people partially? <coughs> Is God a respecter of persons? No, He's not. We read that verse earlier. He's no respecter of persons. He treats people impartially. So He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. He causes the sun to shine. The blessings of the world, the blessings toward life and sustaining of life are given to all, even those, even those who are enemies of God even those who have an active agenda to say, it's called anti-theism, to say that if God does exist, and I don't believe He does, but if He does, he's, we, we shouldn't believe in Him because He's mean and vindictive and so on and so forth. Uh, there are individuals who are anti-theistic and um, are opposed to everything that is religious or anything where God's name is used. God even sends the rain on them, causes the sun to shine on them. Why? because He loves them, because God is good, that's right, because God is love, there's no doubt about that. So, first of all, we need to remember, it's not up to us to determine who's worthy and who's unworthy. That's the first part of answer to the question. It's not up to us to determine who's worthy or unworthy, deserving or undeserving. God sends it on all. It's not up to us. Um, but how can we, I think the, the, really the question is, I mean, you know, it's hard. It's hard to bless those that curse you, it's hard to uh, live with those who don't like you. How do you do that as a Christian? And so, here, here, here's one simple answer, and this, is, this requires time, and that is spending time with Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18 reminds us that by beholding, we become changed. Now, when you, during the California summers here, go out, receive some sun, you're going to what? You're going to change. The sun is going to transform the color of your skin to a degree, you see. Spending time in Jesus, with Jesus, is going to transform our hearts. 
the way we think our attitudes toward other people. That's the only way. Spending time looking at how Jesus treated other people, how He dealt with them, even those who were spies, even those who were looking to trap Him, entangle Him, um, who were mistreating. I mean, look, when Jesus was being nailed to the cross, He cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. He gave folk, some of them the benefit of the doubt. And, uh, and so we're called to love like that. So spending time with Jesus, allowing Him to change our minds and our hearts is the only solution. It requires time, not just a, a quick prayer and dash out the door, but time, soaking your mind in the life of Christ, in the Word of God, spending time listening to the voice of God and letting Him change our attitudes and our hearts. We're not talking about warm, fuzzy feelings, but we're called to treat people equally, with fairness and with love. Really, our minds need retraining, don't they? And only Jesus can do that. Only He can do that. Let's go to Wednesday's lesson, the whole law. The whole law. Let's continue here with James' train of thinking. James chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. It says, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of how much? All. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. All right. So, we're talking here, James is talking here about keeping the whole law. To keep is to attend carefully to the law of God. And it says here that if we break if we stumble or if we offend in one point, we're guilty of all. If we fall or fail in our duty to obey God's entire law, then we're guilty of breaking God's law. God's law is not a collection of isolated principles. Uh, It's a perfect, harmonious expression or transcript of God's divine will. It's a harmonious whole. To choose one part as most convenient to keep and ignore the rest, what does that really reveal? Does it reveal our desire to do God's will in every respect? No. So if I take one law and I set one commandment and I say, you know what, hey, and by the way, James is talking about which law when he says the whole law. He's talking about the Ten Commandments, that's right. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. He makes that very clear in verse 11. He's referring to the Ten Commandments. So if I'm, if I'm, uh, I'm partial to one law, okay, I'm good here, but I decide to just, you know, sweep that one under the carpet, so to speak. Am I, am, I, am I breaking the whole law or am I just offending in one point? I'm breaking the entire law, yeah. If I choose one that's most convenient for me because it just works out better for me and ignore the others, it reveals my desire to do my own will and not God's will. Uh, look, when glass is struck in one point, even if glass is struck in one point, what happens? The, gla- entire, the, the entire frame, the entire uh, glass is shattered. That's exactly right. Glass is struck at one point and then shatters. A chain, a chain that is snapped by the, is snapped by the failure of its weakest link. The chain is broken. Um, <laughs> you're listening to a, a, a quartet and somebody hits the wrong note. It's just one note, but what has it done? It's spoiled the entire harmony, hasn't it? That's exactly right. If, you've, if a part of your body is wounded, you've injured your entire body. 
If we talk about someone who has Hansen's disease, we're not saying they have Hansen's disease in their finger or in their hand. We say they have Hansen's disease. So the issue, it's a matter of the heart. Does God have all of our heart? You know, we often, as Seventh-day Adventists, we, we take this verse and we say, look, you can't be breaking the Sabbath because if you break one, you're guilty of all. But remember, there are, other, there are nine other commandments. The Sabbath commandment is not the most important commandment. Neither is it the least commandment, but it's not the most important. There are other commandments. And sometimes we're guilty of breaking the others. We may be uh, great at keeping the Sabbath or have the appearance of doing so, but there are other commandments. And we want to make sure that God has our entire hearts so that we, uh, so that we can keep His law entirely. Uh, notice what it says here. We've got someone who's going to read Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Right over here. Thank you very much. Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. We'll come to you in just a moment. Notice a few verses here. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26, talking about keeping the whole law. Notice what uh, God says. Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law by observing them, and all the people shall say amen. That's what it says. <laughs> you can say amen too, that's fine. But that's what it says, and all the people shall say amen. So, cursed is one who does not conform to all the words and this law by observing them. God's desire is that we keep the entire law. Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, and this is, a, this is an individual who came to trip Jesus up, and Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That's exactly right. And so God, that Jesus is teaching obedience to all the law, and it's a law of what? A law of love. Loving God supremely embraces the first four commandments. Loving your neighbor as yourself embraces the last six commandments. And so that's why Jesus could say that these are the two great commandments. Love drives obedience to the law, you see. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And he didn't say that to say, okay, prove it now. You love me, you say you do, prove it by keeping my commandments. No, no, no. He was saying, if you do love me, you're going to keep my commandments. It's going to be the natural outflow of a converted heart, that you'll want to do my will, that you'll want to obey me, you see, because that's what a converted heart does. Galatians 3, 10 through 14, listen carefully, it's interesting. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law, that's a, a quote from the Old Testament, to do them. We just read that from Deuteronomy but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Paul's saying, look, we're supposed to keep the entire law, but no one's justified by their works. We know that the just uh, shall live by faith, yet the law, he goes on to say, is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. So we're saved by grace, and yet if we keep the law, we're blessed. How does this work? What's going on here? He goes on to say, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. What Paul is saying is this, uh, we're delivered by the curse of the law, that is because we can't keep it in and of ourselves, so God sent Jesus who died for our sins, so that the promise of the Spirit might be given through faith. And what does the Spirit of God do in our lives? Changes us. 
As a matter of fact, a part of the new covenant law, a part of the new covenant is that the law of God will be written in our hearts and in our minds. And who does that? The Spirit of the living God. Yeah, so, so true obedience comes because a change has happened in the life, you see. Okay, Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Mm -hmm. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is a fulfilling of the law. So without true love, divine love, we can't keep the law. We can have the appearance that we're keeping God's law, but we're truly not keeping it from a heart that's being changed, you see. It's manufactured. It's like uh, being married to someone you don't really love and uh, putting on a show. What needs to happen is a heart transplant, doesn't it? A true change of heart. All right, so uh, obedience is relational. Obedience always leads us to considering God and our fellow man. It considers uh, concern for one another. All right, Thursday's lesson, and we close James' thoughts here in James chapter 2, verses uh, 12 and 13. Judged by the law. Notice what he says here. So speak and so do, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. So don't be partial. Don't, don't, uh, don't treat people partially. Be no respecter of persons. So speak and so do those as, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you've been merciful to other people, if you've been kind, thoughtful to other people, shown mercy then God will extend His mercy to you during the judgment. So here it is. We will be judged. What's the standard, standard in the judgment? The standard is the law of God. We're all, it's a foregone conclusion that all of us are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There are verses like 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Acts 17.31, He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world. Someone has Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Who has that? Do we have time? I don't think we've got time for that one. I'm just going to read that one for us here. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14. It says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is man's all, or the duty of man. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. If everyone's going to be judged, that means Christians are going to be judged. Isn't that true? Yes, it does mean that. Why, if a Christian is saved by grace, do they need to be judged by the law? It's a good question. What about John 5, 29, where Jesus says that if you believe on Him, you've passed from judgment. You've gone from life, uh, entered from, or you've gone from death to life, He says. Let's remember this that judgment does not remove the basis of our salvation. The judgment in heaven does not remove the basis of our salvation, but looks to see 
Who has met the conditions of salvation? And what's, what are the conditions of salvation? Obedience. Obedience. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were granted eternal life if they obeyed. Eternal life was based upon obedience, conditional upon obedience. All the blessings and promises God gave to Israel were all based upon, they were conditional upon obedience. And our entry into the kingdom of heaven is conditional upon obedience. Why? Because God can't take the disobedient with Him. God can't take the disobedient to heaven. Heaven's going to be a place filled with people, filled with angels who love to do the will of God. And if you don't like to do the will of God, heaven would more represent hell to you if you were taken there. If you love doing your own thing and not the will of God, then heaven can't be for you. So God, in fact, isn't arbitrary. He just simply uh, gives us what we want, ultimately, in the judgment. The judgment reveals whether truly I've received salvation by grace through faith. It's evidenced in my obedience to the law of God. What's evidence? That I truly had a heart conversion, that I truly had a change of heart, that God has truly wrought the miracle in my life. And so that's, we don't need to get too concerned or confused about judgment and grace. As a matter of fact, in Revelation 14 verse 7, verse 6 tells us that the everlasting gospel has got to go to the world. The what's got to go to the world? The gospel. And a part of that gospel is in verse 7 says that we are to fear God, give Him glory for the hour of His judgment is come. The judgment is to exonerate God and exonerate His people who obey Him through faith in Jesus Christ. It's by grace and grace alone. Amen, friends? This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.